Hello, and welcome to I Am Dad podcast with your fatherhood authority, Kenneth Braswell. 30 minutes of wisdom, information, resources, and nuggets to help you on your fatherhood journey. Or maybe you're just curious and want to hear some real talk about fatherhood, family, and the minds of men. Well, guess what? We got you too. Sit back, grab your pad and pen, and maybe even bring a little something to sip on. Enjoy 30 straight minutes of fatherhood, family, and fun with the fatherhood authority. Kenneth Braswell. Welcome to I Am Dad Podcast. I'm your host, Kenneth Braswell. Thank you so much for joining us on another Sunday morning as we continue to roll along in these conversations and continue to dig into the narratives that I believe are so essential um, for us to strengthen our families, one father at a time, one community at a time, one neighborhood at a time, one family at a time. And so um, I am always overwhelmed by my guests um, who bring such a wealth of content and information, particularly when I get a chance to bring friends um, that I've been you know, connected to, not only in friendship, but in this work um, for such a long time. And so that I can tell narratives that I don't have to validate myself. I can say, see, I told you I was with him. Yes, we did this. We did that. And so, but before I do that, I just want to thank each and every last one of you for continuing to um, heed to my request to make sure that you're following and subscribing, whether you're listening on the podcast platforms, make sure you follow and subscribe. If you're watching the YouTube aspect of what we're doing, just subscribe to the YouTube channel because those things really help with our algorithms to make sure that we are reaching more people who need to hear these messages. As a result of that, you know what's driving it. We got the word some weeks ago from um, Feedspot, which is a national um, analyzer of podcasts around the world, over 2 million. They categorize podcasts and dad podcasts is one of the categories that they look at. There's almost 1,800 um, podcasts around the world that focus on the conversation of dads. And I Am Dad podcast ranks at number seven. So I am really, really, really proud of that. And it ranks across several categories. It's not just subscribers and followers. It's content, quality, consistency, um, social content, a bunch of different categories that they rank them in. But the category that we're not doing the greatest app is subscribers and followers. And so if we could get those numbers up, who knows? We might be able to crack the five spot, the three spot, maybe even the one spot if we can really elevate this conversation and help us move this conversation, not only across the country, but across the world. And so, but my guest today is a longtime friend. Um, he's been a brother with me, not in only in this work, but all kinds of work, but specifically as we narrow into this thing we call responsible fatherhood and more narrowly focus into black men, black boys, and our contribution, relevance, and responsibilities to our families. He is none other than Gregory Owens, um, he is a licensed master social worker and worked for the New York State, worked for New York State for over 34 years. He's retired now, um, but he is still toiling in the field doing this work. He's a sought after keynote speaker, trainer, consultant in leadership development, mentoring, cultural competence, and effective approaches for working with young black males. Um, he has consulted on racial 
um, disproportionality with the Annie Casey Foundation, uh, who funded the Juvenile Detention Alternative Initiative Program in the juvenile justice systems in Ohio, Michigan, and Hawaii. We're actually glad to say that we're also working with Annie Casey Foundation, and I love them. Um, I love how they're pouring into us to continue to elevate this conversation, uh, particularly around our mental health aspect with respect to the Black fathers that we serve. And in March of 2023, um, he received the Champion for Justice Award from the New York State Chapter of the National Association of Social Workers in recognition of his longstanding work to eradicate racial disparities in various systems and to seek justice and fairness for families and communities throughout the United States and abroad. How you doing, sir? All is well, Ken. It's good to be with you. It's been a moment, so it's a blessing. Yeah, you know, um, my good friend uh, would always say to me um, when I say, how you doing? He says, man, it's, 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 it's better to be seen than to be viewed. That's what he would say to me. And I was Absolutely. like, I was like, oh, yeah, I get. Yes. OK, OK, I can I, I could get with that. Um, <laughs> but what I want to do is I really want to I start off all my conversations, Greg, with a simple question. But the response and, and stories that I received over the last year are just so um, telling and insightful with respect to why many people do what they do. And I always start off my podcast with tell me your daddy's story. You can tell it from the perspective of your dad, or you can tell it from the perspective of being a dad, or you can tell it from the perspective from both spaces. So, yeah, I've, I've, uh, I've had an opportunity can to work with you over the course of time and know that this is this is your entry this is your entry point for most of these conversations. So you've been consistent with that. So I'm I'm gonna try and give a little background about both because I think both are, are significant in my life. Um and I'll start with my my daddy's story about my father, um, you know, who who moved up to New York State, was moved up to New York State as my grandmother got him out of Decatur, Alabama. He was very young. Uh, moved up to White Plains, New York, finished high school there. Then went back down to Alabama to finish college at Talladega. Then went on and became a dentist at a very young age, so young that we ended up having to take him back to Talladega to actually walk with a graduating class. And about 20 years later, because he left before he could actually walk with the class. Uh, he did some, some, some of his time in the Air Force over in England where my brother was born. Um, and so he has always been a guiding light, shining star um, in our lives, that of my brother and sister. And so we were called him home about 1980, um, but certainly had an impact on us and on many other young men and men as they became adults later on when his homegoing service was held. People came up to the front of the church and said, you know, Dr. Owens was the father I wish I had had, you know, things that I had never heard them say when we were growing up, you know, running track, playing ball, you know, it was just, they, they were always around, but now I understand they were around because, partly because of what my father meant to me. And so he made a conscious effort to surround us with strong black families, strong black men um, from different walks of life. And so we had an opportunity uh, to experience some things that many other folks did not experience in terms of understanding there are and always have been strong black men in families doing good work, going to church, being servants. I mean, I grew up with that understanding. So I think that laid the groundwork and, 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 and established the path for me to end up where I am today. And so very much involved in church, running various uh, 
components of the trustee board and whatnot. That was my father. And also, you know, he's old school. So, you know, if we stepped out of uh, he handled it the old school way. And, uh, you know, that I don't think that did any damage to us, but I know that's not how the world looks upon it today, particularly with our child uh, family uh, system today. But I'm going to tell you something. Uh, I think it kept us where we needed to be in the straight and narrow. So between he and my mom being married for 50 years plus, um, they set a, a wonderful model for what my brother, my sister, and I uh, can explore as we move forward in our lives. And then, of course, you know Kayla. Kayla's our 27-year-old. Um, she's currently uh, at school in Virginia, George Mason, pursuing her doctorate. Um, and she is just the, the delight of my life, you know? I mean, everything shifted, you know, in, in terms of quantum effect on me when we had Kayla, right? Um, everything got, got clearer and complicated and complex and simple and just you know it just it just became very very interesting as you as you watch this child you know that, that that god allowed you to bring into the world grow and become something um and someone um that you can really be proud of and say you know what i'm, I'm so glad that god allowed me to experience this with this woman um she is very independent um she walks her own path she lives in virginia by herself um, she has navigated the educational system at American and Georgetown universities there, becoming white institutions, and yet maintain her focus on who she is as a black woman. Um, so we're just very, very proud of her. And of course, you know, I was involved in track and field. And when she jumped on the track team when she was real young, that was like uh, the, the fireworks went off, right? Because I was able to not only be involved in it, but I coached her for a long time. And so I have very fond memories of that as she was growing up, as I know you you uh, must have, and certainly in Zynga, as we, we track beasts together back in the day. Mm-hmm. So to me, that's a God, a gift from God that uh, you can never underestimate how good God is. But when you see that kind of manifestation of his glory, you you know that this is where you're supposed to be and what you just move forward, even without the handbook, right? Even yeah. without the plan laid out. You move forward and uh and things tend to work out. So those are my daddy's stories to kind of enter our conversation. Ah man, that's awesome. You know, I, I'm listening to you um talk about Kayla and I'm just kind of thinking about Nzinga and you're right. You know, when she was doing track, that was kind of off my beaten path a little bit, you know. But when she called me after her first year of going to Kennesaw with the idea of becoming a sports medicine doctor and told me that she didn't think that that was her path and she didn't want to go back to school to do that. And she wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, I had these mixed emotions because on one hand, she was taking away my story, which was when I get in front of the boys, hey, what's this thing up to? Oh yeah, she's going to Kennesaw. She's going to become a sports doctor. But on the other hand, my baby leaped because she wanted to be an entrepreneur. She wanted to control her own path and do her own thing and follow her own passion. And watching her do that now and watching her become, to your point, the woman that she is, I think the transformational point for her was when I took her to Africa um, Mm -hmm. and she came back. That's actually when that happened. When we came Mm -hmm. back from Africa, it Mm -hmm. shifted 
um, her mindset, her placement in this world, who she was as a black woman and who she was and her responsibility to this race. And so I thank you for always being a um, mentoring beacon with respect to how fathers specifically should pour into our girls, our boys too, but there's something about those girls, man. When those girls fall off the apple tree and you pick it up and it looks just like you, it's kind of like that's an apple you just hold on to for the rest of your life. And now I'm watching, you know, the same thing with KJ, you know, even though I, you know, my basketball career was short lived, you know, this kid has every skill, every attribute, everything that I had when I walked into it, I just didn't follow it through. And now I'm watching him follow it through and looking at him and in an odd way, living vicariously through him because mm-hmm. I'm what would have or could have happened for me if I would have took that route. It just wasn't my route. This was my route, but God is now allowing me to relive it, re-see it, know why he did what he did for me because he wanted to do what he wanted to do for KJ in his way. And so thank you so much for everything that you've done and all the places that I followed you throughout your career. Um, But the second thing is walking into this space of social work. And so for many people who get into the work that they get into around social work, there's always a driving factor into that because most people just don't wake up in the morning and say, I want to be a social worker. Something drives them into doing that. What was that thing that drove you into wanting to be a social worker? Um, I think it was a combination of watching the things that my family did, um, I had the, the great pleasure of growing up in a household with great grandparents, a grandmother, as well as my parents. And they were all servants, right? They were all servants in one way or another. People would come by and they would just try and help them uh, in any way that they could. I remember one day a young man was being chased by a couple of cats and he ended up running to our back door to get help. So he knew there was a safe haven in our house. <laughs> so when you grow up around that, you know, you have kind of an interesting mindset about what it means to develop relationships, interact with people, et cetera. And then as I kind of worked my way through school, I found that people would often come to me and ask me for insight and, and advice. And so I found myself kind of talking and walking with people as they kind of met their challenges, particularly with salient in college. Uh, for some reason, when I, when I, Went to college in New Jersey, found that there were a lot of brothers and sisters there who just needed someone that they could talk to about whatever. And so that began to push me in the direction where I said, well, you know, sociology, psychology, you know, what am I going to do with this here? And then um, I met a sister who ended up going into the field of social work in front of me and was talking with me about it. And I said, well, let me explore this. So I, I got into the school. Um, I ended up finding that that was my niche. Um, I ended up doing well after, you know, after I kind of got it. Because, you know, when you go away to school first, you don't know whether you're supposed to be spending time, you know, socializing or, or actually studying. So you try to balance it. And it's never balanced initially. This wasn't for me. But when I got the balance and I began to understand that there's all this great stuff you can learn about how to help people better than you thought you could. And then I had the pleasure of being in a school where they focused on institutional racism as well as social work theory and practice. Mm. Now lights are going off. And I'm beginning to understand things that have happened in my, had it happened in my life that began to make sense because there's a theoretical underpinning to it. 
So not only am I better able to help people, I'm better able to understand this racial and racialized dynamic that has people in certain places and spaces where I thought that a helping professional could maybe make some difference. So that's kind of how I stayed into it. Certainly it wasn't for the money. I never got wealthy. But, um, you know, you don't you don't walk into some things just to get wealthy. And so that's ended up being my passion and where I've been able to do good work. That's kind of my, 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 my trail that led to going into social. Mm-hmm. And then for you and I, we, you know, we intersected before we actually began to work together in this space through another profession. And I'll come back at that one at the end of the show, because it's just as you can hear his voice. Pete, you will kind of know where I'm headed with this. And people say the same thing about me. I don't hear it anymore, but people mm. definitely hear it when I begin to talk. They're like, hey, wait a minute. You used to, but we'll get there. Yeah, but we get into this. You still got it. I still got it. I, I don't hear it. it anymore. And so when we get to um, New York State, you know, our paths began to intersect as I worked for the Office of Temporary Disability Assistance, OTDA, and you work for OCFS. Um, and I walk into the space and walk into this uh, position of being the director of the New York State Fatherhood Initiative, and you're doing a similar work in what I always call the sister agency to OTDA, which I always say that OTDA was tasked with taking care of the adults. OCFS was tasked with taking care of the children, and we needed to figure out how we merged those things. But where we decided in our personal spaces to figure out what that would look like was in this space of fatherhood. And, you know, it's interesting now because coming up is the Million Fathers March um, Mm -hmm. that, you know, we operate now within Fathers Incorporated as a result of going to see, you know, its founder um, who um, is gone from us now, but in heaven, rest in peace, Philip Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, after him and myself and um, myself and Sean Dove and David Miller went to Chicago um, after he had gotten out of the hospital to see him and check up on him. And we were hanging out with him during that day. And he turned to me, he's like, Kenny, I really want you to take over the Million Fathers March. He says, you understand it better than anybody else has. And I don't want this thing to die. I know you can keep it alive. And so that's what I've been trying to do since that day. And so, but right now, you know, we were on a nice little trek and then COVID hit, bam, shut everything down. Um, And then now post COVID, we're just now ramping that thing back up this this uh, year and school hasn't even started yet. And we already are in um, 102 cities um, across the country in 30 states. It is moving like crazy right now. But I go back to the conversations you and I were having when we were trying to convince um, both OTDA and OCFS that getting involved in the Million Fathers March was something that we needed to do. And the first task that we were both hit with was we could do this. We love the concept, but we have to change the name. Talk to me about what you remember about how we had to kind of shift around the kind of broader concept of working with fathers and more specifically with black fathers, but trying to do that within um, governmental agencies that had their own perspective about what things should look like. Mm, mm, Yeah, yeah, that brings back a lot of interesting memories. Um, And I was preparing for this by listening to some of your earlier podcasts and you continue to be consistent telling people you can work with children 
and families. But if you're not working with fathers, you're really not working with the entire family. Mm-hmm. So I think that was what we were trying to get these institutions, these state agencies, um, very few of which were run by by people who really understood the significance of involving fathers in a, in, in a real important way, um, that, that, that dads count. And that, that the work that we're doing has to include fathers, whatever you think about them and feel about them, because that changes the outcome and has an impact on what happens to children and families down the road. And people were not really ready to hear that, particularly from two black men, mm-hmm. right? So th- there was that component to it also. And so what you're doing is, of course, pushing against the institutional pushback against anything that A is new, B seems to be of, uh, outside of their normal um, walk in terms of, you know, let's get funding, let's do the project, let's do the checklist and make sure that we met our objectives. This was very different than that. We're talking about engagement. We're talking about relationships. We're talking about things that, that really are required to do effective fatherhood work. And they really weren't ready to hear it. And the other side of that, I think, was the racialized component to it. Because the reason that we had to switch the name, as you remember, because they didn't want to be affiliated, they, New York State government at the time, didn't really want to be affiliated with this thing called the Black Star Project. And all that that really was about, right? And that the focus was on black fathers, you know? And and they were very uncomfortable with that. And so we changed it to dad, check your child to school, you know, as 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 a way to kind of meet whatever reticence and, and resistance we met within our state agent agencies. But I can tell you, and, and you experienced it at OTDA, in OCFS, it was a constant struggle to keep it on the agenda, um, to make sure people understood what it was all about. Very little support in the first couple of days, Check Your Child for School Day events. But then later on, all of a sudden, people want to get on television and act like they've been supporting it, right? Um, all of a sudden, you know, people want to talk about it. And quite honestly, very recently, I was asked to go back to OCFS to, to moderate a panel on, on fatherhood. And I said, nah, you know, first of all, OCFS is in my rearview mirror right now. I've got another direction that I'm going into. Mm-hmm. Secondly, by this time, if you have not integrated it into the ongoing policy practice and other considerations of the agency, you're still not serious about it. You know, if you got to call me to come in and moderate a panel, I could, I could get all, you know, ego driven by it. But I think what really happens is people don't embed it in the organizational philosophy and they try and find ways to make it look like it's working when in point of fact, it's really not embedded in the institutional mindset of the agency. So I, I appreciate the fact that, that you are continuing to do the work that the Fathers Incorporated entity has picked it up from Phil. I think you are the perfect entity to continue to move this forward and to have it grow. Just as we were doing here in New York, you're doing around the country and internationally. So I think that we will continue if people like you and others who are in the space continue to talk about the significance of fathers, dispel the negative mythology and dispel the negative data, which isn't true anyway. Absolutely. And, you know, the other thing, too, is, you know, there's another space that you and I walked into as well. And I received many we received many revelations of trying to move this work, you know, into the juvenile facilities and really looking at what fatherhood looked like there. And I remember you and I going down to some of those facilities and having conversations with them about that. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me the most when I think about that time is that they could not even fathom the fact that in juvenile facilities, they had boys who were fathers. 
mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That no one tracked them, that no mm-hmm. one knew that there were dads in juvenile facilities that had kids. Mm-hmm. And I remember Monique uh, Rapidu, um, mm-hmm. we were sitting down one day and I said, you know, we should do a scan if we can, uh, individuals that in OC that are in OCF's juvenile facilities and see where child support is hitting. And the list came back, it was ridiculous. The number yeah. of young, particularly black boys who were fathers that were building arrears in child support and had no idea that those things were being built. But the difficulty in going into those facilities, as you said, and to convince them that this work was relevant work for boys to strengthen them to be better fathers, but to strengthen our communities, and that that was relevant work that they should be looking at was so hard to get people to understand. And I still, to this day, I get it now. But back then it was like, my goodness, how much do we have to do and climb mm-hmm. over in order to get people to see us? When you think about that time and you think about now, and I wanna go back, to, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna be bouncing back and forth only because mm-hmm. I just walk these narratives through. When you look at what you're seeing today out there, when it looks at relevancy, essentialness, and, and, and value of particularly black fathers in this space. How much have we changed from 20 years ago to today? Well, I think that's at least, there's at least two perspectives I have on that. One is that I think there's been some, some change because people are seeing um, black men in particular and other men of color, but particularly black and brown men, a little differently, right? That there has been some success, um, you know, certainly in spaces and places where we may not have seen black men be successful, uh, that now people see it and can say, yeah, maybe maybe there is a way to engage with these, these you know, folks that we felt were not really value added, right? At the same time, we still have negative imagery, stereotypes, promulgated by media and promulgated by public narrative about black men, well, in many general, in many ways, black men in particular, that continues to perpetuate this notion of whether or not, you know, the question of whether or not we really do add value. And so in some ways, yeah, there's been some progress and in other ways, we're still stuck in those old narratives, particularly in a, in a, in a child family system, particularly where you have a juvenile justice system therein, where people are saying, you know, in different places around the country, they don't deserve anything. They should be locked up 23 hours a day in solitary. In Louisiana, the, the, the populace voted against the, building a new facility, which I'm okay with. We don't need more facilities, but, but they were going to build one and they were going to have air conditioning in it for the, most of the young men who were in the facility. And they voted against it because they didn't think these young men and, 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 uh, and particularly young black men deserve air conditioning in Louisiana. Mm-hmm. In, the, in, the, in, the, in the youth justice system. So in many ways, I think that we have shifted a bit, but certainly not the way that we would have wanted to, given all the hard ones. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of stuff that's happened since you and I have um, departed both of those agencies and things that we have had to kind of incorporate and deal with within our work. Um, one of the issues and one of the things is race, but within this conversation of race, we have kind of watched the stories of people like Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown, 
uh, Walter Scott, um, Freddie Gray, and then and the names go on and on and on and on and on. And some sisters are in there as well. Yeah. You know, when we look at this work today, and one of the stories that I always um, mention to people, Greg, is this kind of mental health component as it relates to grief. Um, and grieving the grieving process over um, our, our over our falling men, mm-hmm. and I know that you are now getting into the space of healing, right? Mm-hmm. So you got this grief thing happening on one side, and the necessity of healing on the other side. But people don't have time to heal because they keep having to constantly grieve over mm-hmm. what's going. On. Mm-hmm. How much of your work now that you begin to move in this space around healing is going to help us impact, you know, what's happening with at least the mentality, well-being and mindfulness and mindset, you know, of our families? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I have I have uh, had the pleasure of being uh, certified by uh, Flourish Agenda, Dr. Sean Jen Rights Program, which has healing-centered engagement as one of the is one of the ways of dealing with the trauma that is persistent for many of our people, right? And so it's a bit different than trauma-informed care because that really speaks to episodic kinds of trauma that can be dealt with maybe clinically, but doesn't get to the root causes. So when I now incorporate this notion of healing-centered engagement, it acknowledges the fact that the grieving process and the trauma is not episodic. It doesn't have an endpoint. It is ongoing, like revving your car 24 hours a day. So things are going to break. That's where harm comes in. And so what we need to do is implement a different worldview about what healing looks like. And that grieving may be an ongoing proposition. On the other side of that is this notion of what does well-being look like? And, And realizing that, you know, young people will tell us, I'm more than my trauma. I'm more than what happened to me. So the question we have to ask them is, who do you want to be? Not what happened to you, and certainly not what did you do, but who is it that you want to be? And so Dr. Jinwright's program offers us a framework for that that gets us not just to trauma and, and, and to try to cope with trauma, but get beyond it and get to what it means to be a whole, fully human person in this world that has agency, that has aspirations, that understands that relationships are important, that walks through these toxins that exist in the world and can still manage to get to a healthy or well-being set of circumstances. So that's why I think health, health healing centered engagement is so central to everything that we need to do and why I'm making it a part of my organization's transformation work to deal with racial justice in lots of instances. Yeah, it's so critical because literally just yesterday I was having a conversation with someone and I posed this to them and I'll pose it to you and you tell me what you think about this. And we were talking about this incident in Montgomery, Alabama. Mm-hmm. And my comment was, um, and I'll tell you who I was talking about because he wasn't mine. I was talking to Bishop Ferg. I was talking to Bishop Ferguson about it. Mm-hmm. And him and I shared the same kind of thought and I said, I'm numb about it. I said, I'm not rejoicing because of some notion of we finally got them. Mm. Um, I'm not um, horrified by what I saw because to a certain extent, I'm a little desensitized to stuff Mm. like that. Um, I said, you know, part of my issue now is the response that I'm seeing and how people are 
responding to the incident to the incident using a false face of humor, right? Mm-hmm. Use humor to get past it. And mm-hmm. my thought was that that in and of itself is the problem that we should be looking at because we're not absorbing this in the way that we should absorb it because we can't absorb it anymore. And this is what I said to him. Mm-hmm. And I said, and what it looks like to me, and I've been thinking about this a lot and I don't know what to do with it. I've just been thinking about it. It is that when we think about our behavior and our response to what's happening to us as a people, um, it has always been the solution, at least what we think is the solution, is that we have to change our culture, that we have to change the culture of who we are and change how we function and change our responsive culture. And I said to him yesterday, and I said, and this is kind of gleaming a little bit from what I had revelation about when I came from Kenya this year. And I said, it almost feels like this is no longer a culture issue. This is a DNA issue. Mm. And when you said that we have, that this grief and what we're going through has been sustained, there is an evolutionary change to DNA that becomes part of who you are to adapt. It's almost like short neck giraffes who grew long necks in order to get to the rubbers that was higher up. Mm-hmm. It almost feels like today that our responsiveness to these kinds of things, particularly racism, has now become part of our DNA, which makes it much more difficult to impact and change than it is to change culture. And I don't know if, if that makes sense. It makes sense in my head. Now, what do I do with that and how do I impact it and how do I get past that? I have absolutely no idea, but it is at least how I'm seeing it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I think that there are a couple of things that are really important for what you said. There's climate change and culture change. I have always been a proponent of changing climate because culture is so hard to change. Culture is the history and the backdrop and, and, and what happened that caused us to be where we are. So people who want to be uh, culture change uh, specialists have to deal with all of that. And most people think, well, I come in here and I'm going to change the culture. You have a better opportunity to change the climate by changing language, by changing relationships, by changing how we feel about one another. And that can lead to a different reality than you do about changing all the things that happened that caused it to be this way. So the relevance to Montgomery for me is, yes, we did use humor to get through it because we're suffering so much. In this day and time, we are being harmed by public policy, by narratives, by people who really would rather see us somewhere else in lots of ways and shapes. And so we are feeling as if we're attacked and it feels like I've got one chance to get back. And so now the memes come out and all the humor comes out to me, that's a result of people who are really very harmed um, by this, by their circumstance. So I think the way to, to get to the other side of this, Ken, is to begin to shift the worldview. We have, as, as, as one person listened to recently said, we have accepted the abnormal as normal. 
And we have walked in that path for so long that we no longer realize that was abnormal. That whole interaction from the time that brother got up there to try and get them to move that, 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 that pontoon or whatever it was to the resulting you know, explosion of violence against him, the response that came back as a result of that, none of that should have happened in the fashion that it did. It was an abnormal circumstance. And yet we live in a society where that kind of reaction and, 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 and that kind of response looks like it's almost normal. And so let's deal with it like it's a normal thing. And now we'll apply humor to it and blah, 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 blah. So we have to first accept, I think all of that is abnormal. Secondly, it harms us. It harms all of us. It is particularly harmful in terms of racial aspects for black people. And then we need to shift the world due to what would it look like if we didn't have to deal with all of that? That's the possibility of thinking. We get hung up on solving problems and not looking at possibilities. There is a reality of, of a possibility where that never happens again. And I think we need to focus on that. Now, when you look at um, our youth, because, you know, you are focused like I am in a very different way, specifically on black boys and what that looks like. I literally, um, I need for you to send me your mailing address. I literally just released a book, um, an affirmation journal for black dads. Um, because I'm in this space that, you know, um, black men specifically, but more particularly black dads need to be affirmed, right? They need to know that they're worthy. I use this as a narrative all the time when I'm speaking about this. And I always say that, you know, there's a reason that Spider-Man is called amazing because there's some mornings that he wakes up and he doesn't feel so amazing. And someone has to remind him that he's amazing. The mm-hmm. same thing with the Hulk. There are mornings that he wakes up as strong as he is. He doesn't feel so incredible. And mm-hmm. he has to be reminded that he's incredible. So no matter how great you are in whatever it is you do, affirmation is critical to maintaining who you are because of the things that you have to battle each and every day for the reasons that you battle it. And so my thought was I wanted to create an affirmation journal to really kind of help dads, black dads in particular, um, speak life into themselves Mm -hmm. so that they can get up each morning. And if no one else reminds them, give them the power to remind themselves that they're worthy, that they're essential, that they're needed, mm-hmm. that they're loved, that they're all mm-hmm. those things. And after I finished that, um, God just works the way he works to me. He was like, okay, now we need to do it for middle school black boys. And you know, also need to do it for middle school black girls. Mm-hmm. And so those two will be out in June. So I'm moving in this space of affirmation. So I really want to connect with you on this healing thing in this healing space, because I really believe affirmation is part of that healing process. That's one of the things that when you talk about changing the climate, you change the climate by what rolls off of your tongue in the morning, particularly Mm -hmm. when you're speaking to yourself and Mm -hmm. that have to reimagine a language that we speak that affirms who we are, even within the situation that we're in, so that we don't succumb to the constant bombardment of traumatic episodes and traumatic consistency that we have had to deal with, you know, over the course of time. Because at the end of that line is our children's children's children. And at some point, we got to start thinking about how what we're being traumatized today 
is going and how we respond to that trauma today is going to impact our great grandchildren moving forward. Mm-hmm. So when you're thinking about that, if you're thinking that long long range in the work that you're doing, how are you thinking about incorporating what we have to do as particularly black men for mm-hmm. our youth? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm going to take a page from, from Dr. Zinwright's uh, healing work and, and talk about this notion of transactional relationships versus transforming relationships. So most of our relationships, if we're not careful, become transactional, a business model and one that's based upon, you know, the capitalist business model that we have been convinced is the best way to, re- you know, to, to live in this culture, right? I'm not going to give you something unless I can get something back. And by the way, I expect to get more back just because it is our, is our way of relating to it. I'm not going to help you unless I can get something back. That's transactional. It's also transactional to have a checklist every day instead of realizing that relationship building and capacity building is more transformative than this checklist. So the to-do list doesn't become your, your, your end all. The asking the question every morning, who do I need to be today, becomes the way that you engage in the day, right? Because you know life and death is, it comes out of the power of the tongue, right? You, that's, that's what our faith walk tells us. And so, yeah, Dr. Shinred also says that we need to start with our mirror and not our lens. What does that mean? Mm-hmm. We need to talk to ourselves in the morning, like you're saying, and do these affirmations while we talk to God, who is also going to tell us, you know, you're made my image and my likeness, so there ain't nothing like you. Uh, so if you don't believe that, um, you know, God is in control of your life, at least understand these affirmations from a, from a more cultural perspective, that if you continue to repeat something, eventually it will become part of your narrative because it becomes part of what you say on a more regular basis. So I completely agree affirmations are, are part of a healing process. You got to do them regularly and religiously, if you will, and you got to practice them. Practice, it's not just practice that makes per- perfection, it's perfect practice. So you can't miss doing an affirmation in the morning and maybe several times during the course of the day. Um, so I like the fact that you're going to kind of break it down and have it by age group and, and by gender. Those are important considerations because, as you said, you know, black men and young black men are going through different kinds of things depending on where they are in their age group. And then there's our sisters who are going through some things that they really need to take a look at affirmations to improve circumstance. And to, we got intergenerational things to think about. We can't think about today anymore. We got to think about what we want it to be like for our, for our children's children's children. So how do you do that? You speak truth into it. Right. So when you look at the professional landscape, as we kind of round out to a close, mm-hmm. uh, there has been an emergence of this term DEI, right? Mm-hmm. Inclusion and inclusion. Uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. Mm-hmm. And when I first heard it, and now that I know more about it, now that I've read more about it, now that I've you know seen more about it, now that I've seen it activated in very, to my bird's eye, dysfunctional ways that people, corporations, and companies are trying to press DEI. Mm-hmm. One of the things that I've said is um, DEI is just affirmative action and diversity by another name. It's mm-hmm. a thin veil of mm-hmm. the right terminology to use to hold back the resistance to the current situation mm-hmm. of oppression within the corporate and, and corporate and upper control structure, right? And so, but 
while that is happening on one level, we have still got to take the content of that very serious because it is important, you know, that there is equity. It is important that there is inclusion. It is important that there is diversity, Mm -hmm. but it always seems that those things come at the expense of us. Mm-hmm. Right. And so as you're framing DEI within the work that you are now doing and have always done in this space, mm-hmm. what does it look like now and how should it be looking as we move forward? Yeah, thanks for that, because I, I am not a huge proponent of DEI as an end all, just like I'm not a huge proponent of cultural competence as an end all. It doesn't stop with being culturally competent you have to understand the fullest nature of culture and how it impacts it doesn't DEI becomes a catchphrase. If you don't have fairness and justice as your ultimate destination. Mm. So D is diversity. That's just difference, right? Equity is achieved only when everybody has an opportunity to experience opportunities in the same fashion. And we know that's not happening. Right. Inclusivity is is good because you can feel like you belong at the table. But I like John Powell's work on belonging because that leads us further down the road towards fairness and justice and bigger transformative ideas. So if you just want to you know, focus on DEI, then you begin counting numbers and it does become an affirmative action exercise if you're not careful, because people never peel back who really has the power and who has always had the power and who they're passing on the power to, and where the opportunities really present themselves for my grandchildren the same way they present themselves for your grandchildren. And that's why this legacy conversation, as they try and undo affirmative action, is really getting kind of interesting, isn't it? Because Mm -hmm. now you're talking about fairness and justice and not just numbers, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think that DEI is not an end all, um, that it really doesn't have the same relevance as looking at what fairness and justice, real true belonging is. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a real extremely erratic behavior that has been happening for a minute now, but it just kind of reared its head the other day as um, um, Alpha Phi Alpha pulled their conference out of Florida, right? Right. So there is, to your point, there is a climate and and an environment that is building that is clearly speaking to black people who live in Florida, that this is not the space that we want you here. Right. We really want to eliminate your history and we want to eliminate your history so that it eliminates you and moves you out. And so one of the most revered fraternities in our country says, "Okay, we're out then. We out. We're going to go somewhere else. But the response to them doing exactly what you're forcing them to do is then met by death threats. Like, it's like, okay, wait a minute. It's like a dysfunctional relationship. It's like, do you want, do you want me to go or do, is it that you want to just suppress me and allow me to stay here so that you can continue to abuse me? What does that really look like? Like, that behavior, do you see that increasing or do you see that just being a sign of the times? No, I think it's, it's going to increase because once the genie's out of the bottle, you can't get the genie back in the bottle. And, and in the last administration, and historically, quite honestly, but it was so very much in our faces in the last administration, it's real clear that, that white supremacy is first and foremost on the table for certain segments who are in power in this country. 
They don't have any problem with being straight up about not wanting black folks, um, not only their history, but their presence, right? Not only our, our, our history, but the reality of the things that we've done to make America what America is, our history in the world. You know, and so you're right. If you can eliminate my history, you eliminate me, but you eliminate me into the future. So if I'm not careful, my grandchildren don't even understand and have no place in this. And so I think that this is this is very dangerous. And I also want to want to put a pin in this notion of us being asked to be resilient. We don't need to just focus on being resilient. We need to move through resilience, which in many people who are in this space that you and I work in understand that resilience can sometimes be seen as asking us to suffer with nobility, right? And so, yeah, I don't really want your your presence in your history in Florida, but come on in and bring your millions of dollars, you know, and pump them into my, my, my state, right? And so when you say, well, I'm not going to do that, well, now I'm angry at you because in my power, I should be able to force you to do that. And so we've got all this going on that I think is just going to manifest itself more or until we make that turn and get back to some sense of what is normal. All this is have normal behavior. Come have normally behaving people. <laughs> and so until we call that out and say, you know what, not only is this abnormal, but it's harming the entire environment. This entire country is suffering as a result of it. And our place within the world is suffering. And by the way, your children will be suffering too. I think this thing goes down a very bad path. Wow. Man, Brother Greg, thank you. You you always fill my soul with, you know, I don't walked away with a whole bunch of things I got to now think about, but you'll, I'll be, we'll be talking because I think there's some spaces that I want to bring your voice into. There's some spaces that, um, there's some things that I want to do and some ideas that I have about some things in these spaces that I think would be incredible for us to be able to start moving around the country. Mm-hmm. The last thing I want to just kind of bring up was something I talked about earlier, and that was one of the intersections of our relationship going back now 20 years, and that is radio. Right. Like, right, yeah. we both were radio personalities. We love radio. Yeah. We work for the same radio station. We did our yep. thing. Do you ever miss it? Oh, my gosh, yes. Someone just asked me that the other day. And I, I told them I would still be doing it if they still had a musical genre that that – I could really manifest my talents, right? And so, you know, they asked me for a second if I wanted to do something in country western and the station flipped over here. And I said, I'm not a country western DJ. I don't do that stuff, right? And I really, at that point, had kind of moved beyond the hip hop stuff because I was kind of aged out of that in terms of, you know, what, what my voice would have sounded like on the air. But I gotta tell you, those nine years was a wonderful experience. I met some incredible artists learned a lot about the music and the industry. And so the short version is, yes, I do miss it. Yeah, you know, I had a chance. I was at an event in D.C. this past summer and was on this platform to, you know, talk about fatherhood and a couple of other things at the Department of um, Education. Mm. And I told Dr. Q English, which is someone I need to connect you with, powerful, powerful sister. Oh, my goodness. She is powerful. But anyway, she put this event together. I never paid attention to the flyer. She sent me the flyer. I got the flyer. I was like, all right, yeah, I'll regurgitate it. I'll put it out there. I never read the flyer. Mm. And someone DM'd me and said, yo, that's dope. Like, you on a panel with Kim. And I was like, Kim who? It's like, Kim, like, 
K-E-M. I was like, what panel are you oh, talking about? Wow. Like, well, I'm like, what panel are you talking about? They're like, the thing you just like posted. <laughs> and I went and looked at it, and there he is. Like, wow. K-E-M, wow. along yeah. with A.R. Bernard, Otis, all these, I mean, these like the power, power people. Yeah. I never looked at it, paid it any attention. Mm. So now I'm in the mm. room with him, and I'm looking, mm. and I'm like, Dude, you don't even understand how much your music brought me through sometimes oh I needed gosh. to get through and how, you know, I met you before you became who you were in a hallway in Washington, D.C. at a YMCA conference when he was selling CDs out of his trunk and we had a conversation. Wow about that he's like oh my god i forgot about that and we're talking and i was like and here you are in front of me and i said to him and my wife had just taken me to a concert to see him in atlanta mm -hmm. so here he is in the room and he is telling his story about his challenge with depression mm -hmm. and being a dad and it all came full circle for me it was mm -hmm. kind of like whoa like you look at these individuals a certain way because you sat there behind this mic and you played their music you sing their songs and you resonate with what they're saying but one of the things that i never paid enough attention to that you listen to the lyrics of the hit songs but you don't listen to the lyrics of those songs that they put their ten toes into yeah 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 yeah. And so when he tells a story and he attaches it to a song, then I go back and listen to the song. I'm like, oh, my God, yeah. I missed that. Yep. Yep. I missed that. In the mix of him being who he was, this cat was struggling. Yeah. 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 And, and you don't like, have the filter for that if you're not if you don't know his story. Right. Absolutely. And so the way I miss it is in if I knew what I knew then, what I knew today. And that was being able and uh, that would be finding a way to use those influential voices yep. to empower the community in a way that levels the humanity of who they are separate yes. from the stardom of who they sell for records, yes. but to allow community to like know the real stories about the individuals that they're listening to and don't find out about their struggle until their biopic is made and placed. Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. That's yep. what I miss about it. I miss and wish I could do that now as I listen to lyrics very differently. Now I'm listening to these young brothers pour out and tell their stories about what they're dealing with out there. And we're not paying attention to it because we've dismissed the genre, right? Because yeah, it's not yeah. what it used to be. That's what we say. It's not. No music has ever been what it used to be. It's all moving and growing in, into the future. Yep. Yeah. And so that's when I miss it. And I missed it. And then the other place I miss it is when I go to a party and the DJ is whack and I'm sitting there like. <laughs> 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 right. Don't you know? Don't you know? <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Yeah. Greg, thank you so much, man. I'll be calling on you. You'll be hearing from me. Make sure you send me a, I'll send you a text so I can get your address so I can send you this book that I've just finished. I look forward to getting it. I look forward to getting it. Keep doing God's work, brother. We'll be in touch, all right? Absolutely. Thank you and take care. You too now. Thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us. 
You've been listening to I Am Dad Podcast. We hope that you have been informed, encouraged you to think, or even inspired your heart for the love of dads. The conversation does not end here. Come back and join us next week. Same time, same place. Or you can continue the dialogue on our I Am Dad Facebook page. We also invite you to listen to past episodes, learn more about us, and keep up with special activities by visiting IamDadPodcast.com. That's IamDadPodcast.com. Until next time, I leave you with this reminder of manhood from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. Because of this reminder, I will always understand that I am dad, period.